the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast slash interview special edition episode. Woo, so excited. Um, so really excited. Uh, last week we talked about the Monster Squad on the podcast and we've been very fortunate and I feel honored to get to do an interview, our very first interview for the podcast. I hope that we get to do more of these in the future. Yeah, it was uh, fun. And so I was very happy that we were able to interview Andre Gower, a star of the Monster Squad and the director of the documentary about the making of Monster Squad, Wolfman's Got Nards, uh, also joined by his producing partner, Henry McComas, who also edited, co-wrote, and uh, shot the documentary. It is a documentary about the making of Monster Squad, its effect on its fan base, and how huge and... uh, I guess rabid the fan base for the Monster Squad is. I, you know, I, I, I like to include ourselves amongst those people. That whole time you were talking, I just had this like, like giant like crowd applause like happening behind it because I just the documentary is so awesome. Yeah, and we we were able to get a screener uh, before we uh, yeah so that we could watch it before we interviewed uh, these guys, and it's. Uh, watched it twice and it's a fantastic fantastic documentary i think uh, even if you're not a fan or you're not familiar with the monster squad you would still get something out of it um so we'll uh it's not just a a fan documentary it's not a a just straight up documentary it's kind of just this all-encompassing unique story about monster squad it's really cool and i think like monster squad has a lot of heart it does. And I think it comes through in this documentary. So we won't we won't waste any more time. Uh, we'll go to our interview with Henry and Andre, and um, and then we'll uh, after the interview we'll come back for some quick final thoughts. So uh, stay tuned for Andre and Henry McComas. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We've got Andre Gower and uh, Henry McComas. Hey. The creators of uh, the documentary about Monster Squad, Wolfman's Got Nards. And I have to say, I I love this documentary, guys. And, Thank uh, you. <laughs> um, first, just kind of want to know, how did you guys come together, meet? Like, where did this partnership start? Um, just kind of start there. Uh I was uh, working, uh, I work at Pilgrim Media Group, and I was leaving uh, for my lunch, and uh, I was walking out with a couple friends and co-workers, and there was Andre uh, talking to one of our co-workers because he was meeting someone else uh, for lunch, and as I was walking to the car, my buddy uh, Wesley, who ended up working on the documentary with us, uh, pointed out that there's Sean from the Monster Squad, <laughs> and my mind was blown. I was like, no way. And we just started talking about the movie. And uh, I think Andre and I 
instantly knew, uh, noticed entrepreneur characteristics in each other, started throwing business cards, and then we uh, started going to the bar and talking about a project that would later turn into Wolfman's Gottenards, the documentary. Yeah, it was really kind of a uh, uh, awesome sliding doors, serendipitous uh, lunch hangout because I got delayed by like five minutes. Otherwise, I would have pulled off the curb and uh, with my friend to go to lunch and not meet these guys that day. And there was a concept floating around that I had kind of started a little bit on a totally different level, uh, not anywhere what we ended up with. And uh, it had been paused for about five months. And, you know, once I met Henry and the rest of that team and we kind of conceptualized a, a, a different vision and a much deeper, uh, you know, concept to what the documentary could be, uh, we started working on that together, and then we, you know, we took it upstairs and, uh, you know, did our uh, kind of inside sales to the executives and uh, got everybody on board, and it turned out to be a really good uh, deal development and experience for the last year. I think it's a perfect example of right time, right place. No doubt. Yeah, it really sounds like it. Um, so, Henry, you were a fan of Monster Squad. So do you feel, um, what do you think you, Andre, of course, you've got, you've got a, a heck of a perspective on uh, Monster Squad, being that you were in it and the star. Um, Henry, what do you think that you added to to this? Like, was there a certain outsider perspective that um, you think you added to it? Or how was that original idea that you had Andre amended? That's a that's a great question. Uh, Andre like connected the entire world of everybody behind the scenes and has also spent the last 10 years talking to the fans and kind of being the gatekeeper for the Monster Squad. Uh, one of the things I wanted to aesthetically bring uh, to the documentary is that feeling you get as a fan of movies when you go into a dark movie theater, sit down, and get transported into what will be your favorite movie experience, and how that imprints you and stays with you through the rest of your life. Uh, and I think we captured that. I, I think we ended up uh, making a documentary that represents the fans of the Monster Squad and also speaks to people that have fallen in love with the movie before. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I was also a really huge fan of the documentary and the like what you're saying about that experience of enjoying one of your favorite films or being excited about a film as the movie, not, not to give out spoilers, but as the movie ramps up and it starts to get deeper into fans experience with the monster squad. Was that something that you guys was in your original conception or did you guys start interviewing, interviewing people and realize that's where the strongest emotional connection would be with the film? Well, I think we kind of knew what the, the core of, you know, the connection and the story, it's the stories and the connection of, you know, how these fans are so tightly connected to this movie for some reason. And it's not necessarily all the same reason, but, uh, you know, there's all these individual stories, but I think what I discovered over the last, you know, 10 years, and then definitely while we were in production on this documentary was that, yeah, all these great stories of how these individuals are connected to this movie for themselves uh, what we ended up realizing um, over time, and then what I think the fans can start realizing through something like this documentary is, 
yeah, they are connected as individuals, and they feel like this very powerful connection as a person to this one movie, but they're also part of a larger collective group that feels the exact same way. And all that does, that doesn't, that just reinforces their connection to this movie because they kind of find their own larger, you know, squad army, if you will, that uh, they just celebrate with, and the bonds just get deeper and tighter and stronger. So that was something that was interesting to see during production of how that that concept and that dynamic really evolved and became, you know, kind of a, a bigger part of the film in and of itself. You know, we had known that everybody liked this movie because they probably wouldn't be talking to us in front of a camera if they didn't like this movie. Yeah. Uh, so we 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 kind of had to find a way of, you know, how could, you know, we do multiple interviews and talk about the same thing, but how were we going to work to make that different and figure out how to, you know, move this story along? Because we didn't want this documentary to be a, you know, led by the nose, heavy voiceover, uh, you know, chronological making of something. It was a story about fans and their attachment to this film and how something like a movie can affect or change someone's lives. And as we got into it, we realized that they were doing it for us with their stories. And Henry, you know, and the team, you know, as we collected so much information and so many interviews, uh, really found that, you know, narrative thread. And Henry put a lot of work into creating the story that you see when you see the documentary. And I think it came out above and beyond anything from our original concept. The great thing about the fandom is it doesn't matter if you're a ticket holder from Kentucky or if you're the showrunner of the Goldbergs. You're on the same playing field because you're both passionately talking about something that's changed your life and inspired you. And one of the things that I think we really started noticing through the production of the documentary, even though we talked about it a little bit, it became even more evident how much influence the Monster Squad had on our future creatives. People like Seth Green and Goldberg or a movie like The Shape of Water or even The New Predator, all of those things wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the initial movie that started it, Monster Squad. Not saying all these movies were directly inspired by them, but there were definitely tropes and things that got carried through. Yeah, without question. I think that that's that's very evident um, when you uh, when you go back and look at Monster Squad. I was I was definitely one of the kids that uh, I knew this movie growing up, and I loved learning in the documentary because it answered the question that I had always wondered: um, Why didn't anyone else ever hear of this? And that it was, uh, that it played on HBO all the time. And I grew up with HBO and I'm like, bingo, that's why. That's totally why I knew that, knew that movie. Um, yeah, it, it's a very interesting uh, part of the overall Monster Squad story of its, of its long, of its lifetime, of its lifeline is, you know, it's an interesting story that a movie has such a huge following that's so connected to it and it did terrible in the box office. Right, So barely anybody saw it in the theaters and was only out for maybe a weekend, maybe two weekends, maybe middle of the second week, if that at all, in the summer of 1987. But that's the power and the dynamic of kind of media in that time of where someone could find something, uh, whether they saw it in the movie theater or they found it on HBO and, you know, had a blank VHS tape that they passed around the neighborhood or they went to the local video store and it was a you know a store clerk recommendation where their buddy said, hey, you got to go rent this movie. So there's three different paths that people found this film on, 
and it just grew and grew, and it, it was it was always there. A lot of people just didn't know it. How about that for accolades? I mean, Oscars are great. This movie wasn't supposed to be here because the theaters said that it couldn't happen, and then a fan base proved everyone wrong. I don't think there's anything more rewarding than that. It's incredible, yeah. In, in the documentary, too, you guys sort of, you, you mention the word cult film a lot, um, and people are talking about cult films, and we, we have the same conversation when we're picking movies for the podcast because there's so many movies that we want to do and we have to preface like this is the original this isn't the reboot or the origin story and I was curious like what your guys's take on cult films are now because now things are so accessible like back then like my introduction to Monster Scott was again someone had taped it off of HBO um, and now everything is so accessible so there isn't I mean, there is like an underground because there's so much content. You, but you, yeah. you, if you, if someone says something, you can click a button and find it. Um, so I was curious, like, what your guys' take on the word cult film is, and and maybe it, as far as like cult films go, what were some of your favorites uh, growing up and movies that you consider to be cult cult classics? Well, first, I want to know your take on it after watching the documentary and everything that you said being completely true. We're now in a time where there's no such thing as a rock star because everybody has their own curated playlist and is going to select the music that they want. So selling out venues is going to be a rarity. Uh, what do you think is the power of a cult film and what makes a cult film cult? Yeah, I th- uh, time, I think, is a huge factor. Um, you know, I always hear, like, like I'll see a, uh, a review of something and they'll say, instant cult classic. Um, but to me, that cult feels like there, there's time where people learn about it and they've, it's passed. When I think of the word cult, I think of like information being passed along and people bringing people into, uh, like learning about this is, this is something that we all believe in that we're passionate about. And then we're passing it on, uh, to the next generation or the next group of people and it gets bigger and bigger, but you, you need time to allow that. So like for me, a lot of the movies that, I consider Coulter, uh, Monster Squad, uh, The Warriors, uh, movies that you would, there are a lot of people that know who these movies are, especially now that we have the internet and we can find everything on IMDb, but a lot of people will say, I've never heard of it. And we, we've just, we're talking about the movie, The Legend of Billie Jean. Yeah. And yes. we, we asked so many people like, Hey, do you, do you know this movie? And they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but to me, that was such a huge part of my childhood. So I consider that to be a cult film because it's just not something that everybody in their, you know, it's not, uh, have you heard of the movie Shawshank Redemption or <laughs> Forrest Gump, you know? Oh, oh, that little thing? Right. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, your answer to, you know, what makes cult is, is time. And I always just kind of struck by when you see a, a preview for a movie and someone's written a review and says instant cult classic, that's doesn't, that's not true because only time makes something a cult hit. And if you're giving it a review and it's on some sort of open media that a bazillion people can see then it's never going to be truly cult based on the original sense of the word. So, um, you know, I think we cover this a little bit in the documentary that the word cult and the definition of cult uh, ha, you know, it has evolved and will continue to evolve over time. 
And it used to be this one little thing that, you know, only a group of people knew, or you would get together at midnights on Fridays and see Rocky Horror, right? You know, the original cult thing. Um, but now if something can be reviewed at this opening festival in, in June and all of a sudden it's an instant cult classic, <laughs> then automatically cult has changed mm-hmm. uh, because it's a wider audience. So, so that's what's interesting, and I think it's a, a, an interesting discussion, and I'm glad we included it into the documentary because we have, you know, like seven, eight different people explaining what cult is, is something like Monster Squad a cult movie, and they all have different answers. And I think that's uh, something unique um, and and worthy of discussion to just about everything that, you know, we consider as, you know, quote-unquote canon cult, uh, unquote. Uh, I just coined a new phrase, by the way. Yeah. Canon, canon cult. cult? Um, and, yeah. uh, but you guys can use it. Just give yeah. me credit. And, um, you know, and then what's like, you know, new stuff that's going to be cult, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it, can a reboot be a cult instant cult classic <laughs> or is it only here because the original was a cult classic, you know, is 80 is Chuck Russell's 87 blob remake, a cult classic, a cult movie because it's a weird genre, you know, it's, you know, jello coming at you, um, you know, I based on a movie, so much. movie, which was totally weird and bizarre at the time. Fantastic. He means totally fantastic. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> it's amazing. And I love that one. But, you know, wh- where does it go? And I don't think we try to answer that. I think yeah. we just, I think we try to ask the question and get many different people's, you know, version of their response of what cult is. Um, and I think in 10 more years, the question of this Monster Squad, a cult classic, will change also. Um, but I love the fact that half the people say, no, Monster Squad's not a cult classic. It's just a classic because it was a giant movie for me and my friends. So it never did that hidden unknown thing. We always knew it from day one. And then the other half of the people say, automatically, it's a cult movie. It is the definition of cult. So I love that kind of back and forth discussion. Um, last Two weeks ago, Shudder did the last drive-in with Joe Bob, uh, and they were showing a bunch of uh, cult films and grindhouse films that I grew up with, and it took me a really long time to discover them because I would find them on a VHS tape somewhere or I'd stay up late and it would come across on the television or I would read in the back of a Fangoria, try and find it and see if I could get it off eBay somewhere or knew somebody who knew somebody to get that tape. Um, and that's when it was punk rock and we were the cool kids because we were able to discover these things. Now, uh, Shudder put it to everyone on Twitter and anybody with a code can log on and watch these movies for the first time. I think that's amazing. I think what I witnessed while that was going on for the 24-hour Joe Bob Horathon was a community of people that love genre coming together, remembering when they first watched those, and some people that would have never seen it before, having the access and the ability to share that experience for the first time. So as we're going into this new era of technology, the fact that we can access this easier is pretty cool because more people are going to be able to watch it. When I think about what makes a cult film a cult film, I do think time is associated, but I also think there's a level of risk. And I think what Fred and Shane did by juggling tone and taking kids who cuss and experience real things and putting them in a world where universal mo- monsters are real at that time in 1987, I think that was a really big risk and ahead of its time. And I think it took a little bit for people to understand 
and fall in love with it, and that's why it's timeless now. I think that's what makes a really good cult film. I think that's a great point. I think, yeah, a lot of movies that I think are considered cult classics were unorthodox at the time. They weren't, uh, people were like, why are you making this? You know, sort of thing. Yeah, and I think, you know, over time, you could almost break it down by decade of what, you know, you're, you know, kind of what is a cult, and is it just grindhouse? Is it just horror genre? Is it other genre? I might even say, you know, weird sci-fi movies are more cult in my mind than, like, low-budget horror, because low-budget <laughs> horror was just a way to get movies made with, you know, guts coming out and heads exploding, um, you yeah, know, in the, the 70s and glasses. 80s. Yeah, you want some, you know, some cool sci-fi, like... Uh, you know, you watch some weird sci-fi movies, like even speaking of Monster Squad, Stephen yeah. Mock's like Galaxina or something is so crazy and weird. Uh, <laughs> could that be cult? Yes. And then is something like, you know, one of my all-time favorite movies, Cannonball Run. Is that cult? Sure. I'll put Cannonball Run in that next <laughs> Yeah, that movie's great. Yeah, and you know it's just bizarre to watch something as a kid, and with all, you know it's that's sort of like a road trip anthology yeah. comedy weird kind of blue humor uh, movie. And I, if I recall as a kid, it was one of the first things to me that had an in credit blooper type thing. So that always stuck with me because it's Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise cannot get through a cannot get through a scene. And uh, or one shot of a scene, they start cracking up, and I was like, I didn't know they did that. This is amazing. So that's oh, I think cult stands out with you as an individual, but yeah. then you find some other people that like it, and you know, you're talking about, you know, I, and I think what really shapes it is the era that shapes you as an individual. And Henry and I always talk about stuff because Henry's super well versed in movies anyway, because he's a filmmaker and he's very good at it. Um, but we're a generation off. Like I'm, I'm a lot older than Henry in you know the scheme of what year you graduated junior high and watched all these movies yeah. uh for the first time and you know kids adventure movies of the 80s were really kind of you know that era that shaped me which henry has seen them all of course but i was a kid in that time yeah. so it, it it hit you a little bit differently and you know i think something that in my mind i think is a cult movie is probably one of my uh, one of my all-time favorite movies is is stand by me and then um you know because it's great source material and great acting but you know talk about a, a kid's adventure movie of the, of the 80s that have kids in peril i'm gonna oh, go with red dawn oh yeah you mean the oh, room no not the room <laughs> yeah the original that to me is you know one of my ultimate go-to favorites of mine but is that a cult movie i don't know and if I'm going to throw a name in the hat, I'll go uh, with Dementia 13. Coppola and Roger Corman uh, teamed oh, up. Yeah. And Roger, Roger Corman took Coppola out of the porn industry and put him into gothic haunted horror. <laughs> and then you can go something weird like, you know, weird sides like Ice Pirates or Megaforce or something, which are terrible movies, but super enjoyable. Robojocks! Yeah, you know, so, you know, where does it, you know, where does it end? And I think that's the cool discussion of, uh, of cult. As I get older, my favorite movies seem to be either cult films or cult-inspired. I'd like to throw Sorry to Bother You in the Hat. That movie just rocked my world. Oh yeah, I just saw that. It was a very another one too. That's like real. A lot of people were turned off. That where it went in a direction that I, no one's expecting, kind of thing. Where 
Yeah, wouldn't you say that direction you're speaking of made it feel a little cult? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, or yeah, I'm, and even the, uh, I guess like just the style in the beginning, yeah, it, it feels like a very uh, unique, there, there's a director behind it, it feels like a very unique vision, it doesn't seem like an ordinary movie, something seemed off and unordinary about it from the get-go, yeah. but then, yeah, what you're talking, I think it got to a point where people that were hanging on that haven't seen anything kind of culty were turned off, I guess. Yeah. So Mission Impossible Fallout is, is not... Oh, never mind. My bad. My bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I am kind of curious, and I know, um, Andre, that you and Ryan Lambert talked uh, about this on your squad cast, and I, and I love this discussion, but the um, idea of remakes and kind of like the resurgence of 80s pop culture and, you know, kind of contemporary things, taking things from Monster Squad or whatever, like um, adolescent movies. I'm not going to. OK, I am. I'm just going to Stranger Things like has ripped off like a, a lot. And um, this whole idea of cult films that we've been talking about when it feels like to me a lot of newer things to come out uh, are stemming from something like heavily from something that came before them. Um how do you feel about remakes or reboots in that can there be can there ever be something that is newer that can be in the future a cult film if if time is you know a, a giant thing that matters in and what defines a cult film but um like how what are your feelings on uh remakes and like the resurgence kind of like uh 80s pop culture yeah well i mean you know great Great question, and you know we could talk about this for about three weekends. I know, I know, it's a huge. Dis- that's why I was so happy you guys talked about it on on Squadcast. Yeah, and you know it's kind of interesting. Like I mentioned something like you know Red Dawn, and they remake Red Dawn, but then that you know goes right into the I don't know where that went. Uh, you know, it's a movie that got made and had to get redone, but I didn't think it was a um, a bad idea to remake something and update it if you do it right and do it well. I think it be, I think it can be fine as long as you, you know, honor. I don't want to use homage, but as long as you respect or honor your original source material and say, hey, I'm using this, um, or even if you're ripping something off, quote unquote, you know, just 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 own it and know it and be like, I am making this this way because these are the things that I like and I want to make a movie or a TV show. Uh, with that, you know, kind of feels, you know, with, with that endeavor in mind. Um, and those are difference between, you know, creating something originally, you know, a la Stranger Things maybe, if, since it was mentioned, and putting all of those feels in there, that's totally different than rebooting something or remaking something. You know, reboots are different than remakes. Remakes, yeah. you know, you got you to gotta accept where remakes are from. Studios and production companies make movies for a current today audience um are you going to piss off you know maybe some original you know original fans or an original generation sure but they're not making that movie for you um so you can't get all bent out of shape about it uh and if you do because then you're going to feel like hey i'm you know my generation's being appropriated and these are my things how dare you twist them and ruin them uh, and I think a lot of people would say that even if the remake is better than the original, you know, <laughs> whether through technology or better writing or better acting or, you know, whatever it is, uh, we all hold on to something tightly if if it's part of a certain window of time with you, I think. Um, and that's where fandom comes in 
and can either be great or be totally, you know, kind of disruptive, uh, you know, a la like we're seeing with new Star Wars stuff. Um, you know, the new Star Wars stuff is not being made for original Star Wars fans. It's being made for younger kids today. It's important uh, to know, you know, Scorsese's Cape Fear was a remake. The Departed was a remake. If you have a good production team, there's a way to go about it where it has a unique lens. But what's been really interesting is while we've been touring Wolfman's Got Nards on the festival circuit, we've had creatives come up to us and say, hey, I have a great uh, uh, take on Monster Squad for a remake or a sequel. What do you think if we do this? Uh, and I think the best way to go that route is if you have an interesting idea that was inspired by something, take the main characters, change their names, put a little bit of your personal narrative into that story, and start creating your own IP and bringing new content to the entertainment industry that's inspired by something that meant a lot to you previously. I think that will be a little more original, uh, and it will go a long way for personal creatives and will be something that I'd want to watch as well. With that being said, anybody interested in a Monster Quad Squad sequel or remake, please contact Andre Gower and Henry McComas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's one of the things since, uh, you know, like you said, I'm, I've got a unique perspective, all things Monster Squad, because I'm so inside of it. You know, they were they were remaking the Monster Squad for a number of years. You know, that, that idea started in, like, 2009, 2010, and didn't die until, like, 2015 or, you know, 14 or 15. And a lot of fans were, you know, they got out the pitchforks and the torches, uh, you know, and wanted to really, you know, burn down the, you know, burn down the buildings that the people, <laughs> you know, that had this idea to remake the Monster Squad, um, they didn't want them to do it. Uh, just because they felt so strongly that, you know, it wouldn't be done well or right or whatever, and who knows what it would have been. I don't think it would have been anywhere near the same, of course. But then no. what's different is now we're also in this run of, you know, deep, deep nostalgia for times that, you know, us, you know, 30 to 50-year-olds right now are really loving the time when we were 15 because uh, there were no mortgages and no health insurance issues and, <laughs> you know, no world politics and no local issues and no school and, uh, you know, so we're, we're jonesing for that time that was awesome, and the creatives of the time were affected by it, and they're greenlighting and, and, and writing the things with those emotions and those feels. Um, and that's why we see a, a groundswell of, like, sequels to stuff and, you know, ret you know retro sequels, if you will. And, you know, they're, if they're made for the original fan base and their little niche thing or if it just goes to streaming, I think we're totally fine with that because – you know, what is entertainment? You know, what is, uh, you know, film and TV? It's an escape. It's, you know, it's somewhere to go where we can take an hour or 90 minutes or two and a half hours and, or if you're binge watching a series, you know, an entire weekend and go into another land or another world or another kind of, you know, dimension of your world and, and live there for a while and then get back to the real world. I think those times are, you know, those serve as a little reset. And I think retro sequels, you know, if they're done well, even if they're done campy and cheesy, people just like to revisit that. Um, I like the ones that are that are really, you know, like Henry said, you have some thought, you put some originality into it based on something else. But if you're going to do something with a title, um, you know, respect it and honor the original fan base and you'll be fine. And, uh, you know, that goes from everything from Fuller House all the way to The, the Predator. 
and I think everybody will have something to enjoy. Ready Player One was really interesting for me because it was a movie that felt nearly dependent on references, even with its story arc. Uh, and we all talk, if you haven't seen it, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. We mm-hmm. all talk about that amazing uh, Shining scene, but you couldn't have that scene without having the Shining. So I started thinking, you know, Shining was made, what, 60, 70, 71? I don't, I don't remember. 30-some years ago, 40-some years ago, and this movie's referencing it. Forty years from now, will anybody be referencing Ready Player One? I don't know. <laughs> Probably not. I mean, but no. who knows, right? <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> I wanted to ask. Um, so, speaking, talking about pe- people's response to things, like when you're talking about getting people's negative response to an idea of rebooting Monster Squad, you guys are you know, making a documentary that is kind of like about the fans for the fans. What has the experience been like? Notice you've been on the festival run. What has your experience been like in the uh, reaction of people? I'm assuming it's been positive. Uh, If anybody is a fan of Monster Squad, I can't imagine that they wouldn't embrace this documentary. But what what it's been like on the road um, and talking to people who have watched the documentary? Yeah, I think... um like you said, I think anybody that's going to, you know, take time in the programming schedule and, you know, carve out the 90 minutes to see Wolfman's Got Nards, you know, in a festival weekend that has, you know, 30 films in it, they're probably either interested in it or they're Monster Squad fans, and they're going to come out. Um, I, I don't think anybody's going to not like it. What has been very interesting uh, to, to myself personally and then, you know, with me and Henry is the fans that are, that are true Monster Squad fans that weren't expecting what they actually get here. And, you know, they come up to us and, you know, they, they kind of get, you know, they, <laughs> they kind of give us a little side eye saying, Hey man, I didn't know you were going to do that to me. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I knew I was going to get teary eyed at least once, but I didn't know it was going to be four or five <laughs> times, yeah. you know, yeah. and then, you know, balanced out with some great fun and some fun laughter parts. Um, I think that's the part I enjoy most with the initial, direct after viewing kind of reactions. And how about the fans that hadn't seen Monster Squad before that right. still got teary eyed. That's that's been a phenomenon yeah. we weren't ready for. Yeah. Uh, you know, every every screening we've had so far, you know, if Henry and I are there and we intro it, we ask how many people have never seen the Monster Squad. And there's always probably, you know, a half a dozen or, you know, maybe, you know, eight or nine people in there, right? And so it's always interesting. And we let them know that that's okay. This this documentary will still make sense to you because it's not just about Monster Squad. It's about this feeling told through the lens of Monster Squad fans, right? And every single time after this documentary ends, those people that had never seen the original Monster Squad come up to us and say, I'm one that raised my hand. I had never seen the Monster Squad, but I'm renting it tonight because now I want to see what this is all about. A couple of them said it was their, uh, when we were in Overlook, they said it was their favorite movie of the festival, and then came to the second showing after never seeing The Monster Squad. Oh, wow. So that's, uh, so somewhere something in the documentary is, is connecting with someone, and we did something right somewhere. So, uh, it worked somewhere. 
um, I, I can imagine. Okay, so the, this movie did not do well when it came out, and you guys kind of, or Andre kind of rediscovered um, the love that people had for this in the mid 2000s, but that was quite a bit of time after. And now we have Wolfman's Got Nards coming out, and it, I, I can imagine if I were you guys feeling somewhat um, like, holy crap, like this movie is kind of like on my shoulders, and you're kind of ushering Monster Squad. Um, into you know a new audience and and even more than Fred Decker really ever had the chance to because it didn't you know get the credit that it deserved at the time have you felt um, overwhelmed by it or has it been nerve-wracking or has it just been like no this is what's always what always should have happened well I think personally I think what's nice as uh, you know a a residual effect uh, like you're saying that Monster Squad is back in a you know in com- in people's conversations that may not always talk about it. Look, there's some Monster Squad thoughts out there that will talk about Monster Squad every single day. <laughs> they wear their gear, they wear their hats, they wear their shirts, they wear their pins, their buttons. That's their thing. Uh, but it's the conversations that are resurfacing with you know media types and other studio people uh, that are that are revisiting Monster Squad or talking about it again and going, yeah, you know, I was really interested in how much of this impact had on the professional aspect of a lot of people and the influence it had, you know, on writers or other filmmakers or, you know, comic book folks um, or actors. You know, there, there's so many, you know, great names and faces that we all know and love that you find out are big Monster Squad fans and you're like, wow, that's kind of awesome. Um, but, yeah, you know, if, if something like Wolfman's Got Nards, the documentary, can, you know, reignite a conversation about a movie that didn't do well, but now has, you know, the largest following that it probably, you know, could ever have uh, 31 years later, uh, that's kind of cool. And if you know, we're responsible for, you know, a conversation about anything, then I think you've succeeded in making, you know, especially a documentary film. Uh, and, you know, one thing that I hope is, you know, I, you know, we didn't make this movie with that in mind. We didn't make this movie uh, with singular focus, but, you know, one thing I think that I hope comes out of this is uh, for someone like Fred to understand really the depth and scope of what all his movies have affected, but especially Monster Squad, and the story and concept and the product that he and Shane put together and he put out, you know, has really had, you know, a lasting effect, an initial impact, and a, and a long-lasting effect on quite a lot of people, Um you know, I, I hope that I hope that resonates, you know, with Fred uh, at some point and understands that, you know, sometimes that's even better than having the biggest movie of the year that no one remembers. A lot of people don't know that Fred hired Shane Black. Fred gave Shane Black his very first job, and that was to write the script for the Monster Squad. Uh, yeah, shortly cool. after that, his second script got picked up, and it was called The Le- uh, Lethal Weapon. What was it called first? What was the original title? Um, well, I think it was, I mean, I don't I mean, everything was kind of, you know, going there. He had, he had written, like, one other thing that he referenced in Lethal Weapon. And, but yeah, Shane wrote Lethal Weapon while we're shooting, or it gets sold while we're shooting Monster Squad and Greenlit, and then Shane Black blasts off like a Saturn V rocket, right? And then fast forward yeah. 31 years, there's a movie coming out called The Predator. It's co-written yeah. by Fred Decker, <laughs> Shane Black, directed yeah. by Shane Black. The people that uh, designed the Predator in this movie is Tom Woodruff, 
who was Gilman in the Monster Squad. I don't think there's a more perfect time for this documentary to come out. And if it does one thing, I believe and hope it will inspire you. Speaking of Fred Decker, were you guys surprised at all, or did you already have an idea of of um, his response to the movie having this resurgence, like well after it was over? Because he does, he is, um, you know, he's not like the most enthusiastic. He's just kind of shell shocked about it a little bit. Were you surprised by that, or did you know in advance? I was. Uh, I heard stories before we did the interview, uh, and I was worried. What I was surprised by was how positive he was about Monster Squad when he was talking about it and how he lit up. You can tell that that movie is very important to him, and he is emotionally connected to it. And by the end of it, I was completely inspired by him and learning that it doesn't really matter uh, if you release a movie and critics and a box office tells you it's a failure because he still came up out on top in the end. And... I've known sort of kind of Fred's feelings, you know, for, you know, 10 or 12 years, you know, it's kind of hot and cold on this. And I can't, you know, we can all comment on it. We can all kind of, you know, say this is what, you know, it's like, but he's the only one, he has the most singular relationship with this movie uh, that no one else can have. And it, it more than anybody, it has affected him, as an individual, probably a hundred times more than even other people that have been affected positively by it. And he's always had a conflicted type of connection with this movie. And knowing that I wanted him to explain his point of view and his feelings on it. And, you know, we were hoping that that's what we would get in the documentary. And I'm certainly grateful that Fred actually sat down and didn't just give, you know, kind of the, what you think everybody would want to hear or, you know, you know, pay lip service to something and just for the sake of a documentary. And that's why, you know, we let that time and let it breathe. And, you know, that was one of the last interviews that we, you know, we kind of did, we did it very late and, you know, we just, we had Fred in, you know, in his living room comfortable and, you know, we stayed there, you know, pretty much for an entire afternoon and um, didn't do a lot of leading, just let Fred explain and talk about, the overall experience and, you know, we got some things that, you know, we asked certain questions that we knew we wanted to cover and we just let Fred explain and tell his thoughts on it. And what's interesting is a whole, you know, basically a a whole documentary about fans, you know, loving the monster squad and, Mm -hmm. and reveling in their celebration of it wherever they are, whether it's in their garage in Northern California or at a film festival in London uh, Fred Decker's interview is really sort of the, you know, it's the counterbalance to all that. And it's also uh, the most informative part of the documentary, really. And I think it takes a lot of people by surprise because a lot of people, I don't think, understand that interesting relationship that Fred has with his movie and with the effect that it's had over the last 10 years. It's the emotional core to the documentary outside of the positive emotional core. Uh, And truth be told, it took a lot of conversations uh, and a lot of talking uh, for Fred to agree for that interview to happen. But when we got in there, you'll notice, uh, as Andre was talking about the shoot day, that the interview starts with full daylight. And by the end of his interview, it dips to uh, darkness because now it's nighttime. 
and that was all Fred who wanted to stay there and keep on talking about it. And it, he gave us something pretty powerful for the documentary. I think we would have a, a great documentary without that, but um, you know, having that as that core and that emotional tie, that is sort of that the other side and super informative and very emotional. Um, I'm super grateful that we got that and Fred gave the time to, you know, kind of open up and provide what really is, like Henry said, the, the emotional core to the entire story that we were trying to tell. Cause it's not really a documentary. We wanted to tell sort of like, you know, a narrative story of how this movie has impacted people. And Fred is one of those people this movie impacted. Yeah. I think what I love the, so I love the editing of this film that the Fred Decker stuff was my favorite because you don't give that away. I love how you slowly open that up and that he is so honest and sincere and that he's not, uh, that you got like a raw, honest, uh, answer out of him. Um, but you don't give that up immediately after you got that interview. Was that something on your mind of like, we, we have something special here, how we don't want to, put this in the beginning of the documentary want to ease it in like how what was the process of uh editing the film i i think the editing is so strong i, I was just something i know a lot of it's not the most uh, exciting thing to talk about editing but i really love it i think it's it's um what makes the story so strong and like brings everything together well that that's that's true and you observed uh an, an actual fact that the editing of this movie is what kind of makes that storytelling work and that is all Henry and you know Henry put many 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 I don't even say hours he put days and weeks of time over a short amount of you know months to really cut this movie into the story that we have and you you know having that you could have put that whole Fred Decker interview just made a chapter and said Fred Decker here's this whole interview and then be out and that that wouldn't have served its purpose it wouldn't have um you know, served the, you know, the aspect that we wanted Fred to provide and, and, and tell that story. And once we had everything, I mean, Henry put in a massive amount of work and skill into tying as much stuff as we had into um, the story that we're telling. And I'll let him explain kind of his process with that, but um, it's very interesting how he approached that. Uh, thank you so much for uh, the kind words and noticing the editing. Um, the I think the what you're talking about with Fred Decker, what really saying there is those lawn L cuts because he took the time to collect his thoughts, and you can almost see the struggle inside his head before he talked about those things. Lots of big deep breaths. Um, the uh, you you said it might not be the most interesting uh, part. The editing is kind of an adventure story for this documentary because what we did is we followed 17 different Alamo draft houses across the country. Uh, and so we had a booth and an editing station set up inside a minivan because we shot for this documentary in one year over 40 terabytes of footage. And to be able to go through that and make our selects, we had to go through everything in real time. So as we were driving wow. to the next Alamo in Texas and then hopping on a plane and going to Brooklyn and then driving to Winchester, Virginia, uh, we were in the back of the van pulling our selects, AEing the footage. Uh, Wes was doing an amazing job AEing. Uh, and then we'd have line cuts that night to see through uh, everything to start 
deciding what our story is. So with the documentary that you saw, there were about four other documentaries it could have been. It could have been a road trip story. It could have been a, a basic fan doc. It could have been a behind-the-scenes documentary. And the decisions that uh, we needed to make with Andre's uh, guidance was figuring out what stories worked with each other and where our true narrative was going to be. And we also had a lot of uh, editing milestones. For instance, while we were shooting the Draft House tour, uh, Andre was organizing events like a Fantastic Fest event where we would uh, need to have a 30-minute version of the document documentary ready to screen at Fantastic Fest. So that means your color needs to be correct, your sound needs to be correct, and it needs to be an accurate portrayal uh, of what the movie's final product is going to be. So we were, oh, it was an evolving film from day one to the very last day that we had final cut. That's, uh, yeah, I think um, That's a lot of times, like, people don't realize, audiences don't realize how many hours you're personally having to go through, like, hundreds and hundreds of hours of, like, raw footage that you went through. Easily, yeah. Also, a little bit, too, about, I was, the music is really great in this. I love the way the music mixes with the editing. Is there anything that you could say about the music or just how that came together? Was that, was music a uh, part of your plan when you were thinking about cutting it together? That's one of the coolest things about Andre's uh, vision. As the director, he was like, there's a couple things that are really super important. The fans need to be part of this production. I think it's really cool that you guys are cutting and holding cameras, but let's get some fan art, and also let's reach out to the fans for the music. And so Andre started to assemble these amazing cues we couldn't have gotten from anywhere else. Yeah, because we, we ended up being very lucky in an idea that I had from the very beginning that almost every aspect of this documentary, uh, the people that touched it, uh, were also fans or, you know, uh, followers of, you know, kind of the, the squad world. And what we ended up being lucky with is, you know, kind of the core stuff we wanted to do is there's, um, you know, Ryan Lambert, who plays Rudy in the Monster Squad, is also, you know, a talented musician and, you know, basically, you know, a, a rock star guy. And he'd been in many different types of bands ever since his days in Kids Incorporated and Monster Squad. And I thought that would be a really cool element one for Ryan himself, but also for Ryan Lambert fans and Monster Squad fans to have music from someone in the m movie in the documentary. So we started there and then we also, you know, branched out and I, you know, I've met great fans over the years that, you know, it's like, Hey, I did a version of this or I make music and it's inspired by this. And I was like, well, why don't you send that to me? I'd love to hear it. And you know, a couple a couple cuts in the documentary are from uh, a fan that we met on that Alamo Drafthouse tour, and I heard you know this last cut, and I was like, "What is this? This is amazing! We've got to." And I sent it to Henry, and I was like, "Hey, you've got to listen to this. Uh, we've got to use this somewhere. Let's let's get permission. I think he's on board." And then Henry and he started working even more and more and providing even more original stuff. Uh, so you add that on top of Ryan Lambert, who was in the movie, then, you know, a random awesome guy in the middle of the country that, you know, makes music on his own that we end up using, all the way to the Edward Cheese Band in an event, um, and then, you know, what am I forgetting on music side there? You know, it's even, you know, we had all of this great stuff that Still ended up working in. It's just all fan submission type things. 
which is also what we wanted to use when I knew the fan art and either doing cover songs or original music is also fan art to me about Launcher Squad. But, you know, physical fan art being paintings or sculptures or drawings or figurines, you know, I wanted to make sure that that part of the fan art was in there as well. And my original concept was a little bit different. We ended up using it in a much better way because there's some great stuff out there and the music is part of that. And so everywhere, including my production team with Henry and all his guys, all the way to, um, you know, the music and the fan art and our transition pieces uh, are all, and now even to like our PR team, honestly, and stuff like that, mm -hmm. everybody that's involved with this documentary uh, has a connection to it because they are fans. So the one thing that really uh, jumped out at me in the documentary was the, the professor that taught the class with Monster Squad. Um, where did you find yeah. some, how, like, how did you come upon some of the people that are interviewed in the movie that aren't part of the original cast and crew? Yeah. Uh, you're talking about, uh, uh Cal State Fullerton professor, uh, Dr. Mike Dillon, right. Who's actually, uh, I think I met Mike, you know, I've actually known Mike for quite a while. I'd have to ask him where we first originally met it. I think it was at a screening for something, um, or an event here in town. And he just introduced himself and said, Hey, uh, you know, I'm a professor of, you know, cinematic studies at Cal State Fullerton. Uh, would you be, uh, I'd love to have you come be a guest in my class. Uh, this was years ago. Um, and every uh, every fall semester in his 101 class, he shows Monster Squad. And he'd been doing it for years. And then we finally met and he asked if I would be willing to come and, you know, meet the class and talk after one one time they did it. And I think the first time I did that was three or four years ago. And then the next year, Ryan and I went, and then the next year after that, we brought Ryan and I and Henry and the camera crew and got to be part of the documentary. And that's just sort of something that, you know, I selfishly, you know, wanted to happen because I think it was a cool experience that you get asked to go talk to a college class of a bunch of 18 to 20-year-olds that had never seen your movie in their life. But, uh, you know, that's a whole other generation of people that are now connected to it in some way, and you get to meet them and hear new reactions to it. And, you know, they asked some good questions. Now, Mike, uh, I just went to, uh, I just went to a, a screening of Mission Impossible Fallout with Mike the other day. So, he, you know, we're still pals. And um, he's a great guy. And he's super, he's super um, uh, educated. And he's so filled with film knowledge. But he's still kind of just like a really laid back, cool dude that likes different stuff. And, you know, you know, for someone like Mike and I to be able to, you know, sit down and, you know, go out and have dinner or go to a screening of a Tom Cruise movie together, I think is special because we met years ago at an event where he was in line just as a fan. But then once he told me he was a professor and would you come to class, look what that started. You know, that's like a four-year relationship now. The cute thing about Mike is his scene is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And he is so shy <laughs> that he doesn't he doesn't want to see himself in front of the camera. And I think there's uh, something uh, bittersweet about that since he teaches film. Yeah, and he teaches in front of a classroom full of like 80 people every yeah. day. <laughs> you know that you know he has a little uh, you know camera shyness, but uh, he's uh, yeah he's he's almost a little apprehensive about seeing himself in the dock. And I'm yeah. like, well, you're in it. A lot. a lot. And he's like, oh, damn it. And I'm like, yeah, but it's some of the best stuff. And it, it either wraps things up or it actually, you know, sets some things up to talk about in the next, you know, segments or things like that. And, you know, having that perspective of opening up with Mike's class early 
which is something that Henry did. Uh, you know, we open up this documentary about the Monster Squad with a, a, a room full of people that had never seen the Monster Squad. So that was a, that was a bold choice that kind of takes you back a little bit, but totally works. I don't think you can script a moment like that. I, I felt like what it did perfectly was uh, capture that there is a bunch of people nowadays who don't know what it is, and then the personality of the fans when they say, well, you're welcome, because now you're in the goddamn club. <laughs> yeah. Andre and I also talked about jumping into the language of the script very early on with that scene as well to address that in the 80s, kids spoke differently, and so did movies about kids. And we didn't want to hide anything about the production of Monster Squad. Yeah, and I think that was a bold choice. Like I said, one to start off a documentary about fandom dynamic of Monster Squad with a room full of people who've never seen it, but also at the same time get that reaction from a new generation who's never seen movies like that and never heard language or, you know, because you can't make movies like that anymore. And to get this new generation's kind of initial perspective to start off our whole conversation, uh, I think was a very uh, unique and bold choice, uh, you know, that, that Henry threw in there at the very beginning and it totally works. And like you said, sets off the rest of the conversation and I think what, when people see the movie and it starts off that way, uh, if anybody goes into this documentary thinking it's that quote-unquote typical fan doc yeah. or that tongue bath doc or just that, ooh, squee, we're going to talk about my favorite movie type doc, <laughs> uh, you, you get that sense that right away that's not what you're going to sit down and watch for the next you know, 88 minutes. Um, I, I was kind of wondering, um, as far as like how you guys have been running the festival circuit and amazingly well, I'm not saying anything wrong. There's anything wrong with that, but why, why do that versus going to like a streaming service? I think the way that you guys have been doing it is awesome and, and it really helps promote and get, um, you know, get it out there in a, um, kind of in the spirit of, what happened with the with the original movie Monster Squad? But was that a, ever a thought to do um, like streaming just to get the product out there for for the masses? Absolutely. Uh, I think it's interesting when you're talking about a movie from the '80s. You're also talking about formats, and the theatrical experience is such an important one that mm -hmm. not many movies later on may be able to do. Uh, and with something that is as communal. As the Monster Squad, let's get all those people that love to celebrate something and put them in the same room so they can share the experience together. It's a people's movie, so we want to make sure that we can go to every festival in a small town or public screening so they can all get access to it where they might not normally be able to see a movie like this. And once that's done and we share that communal experience, then I think it's time to go to hard copy and digital. Yeah, I think it's 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 a an amazing uh, feeling and you know kind of barometric pressure in the room of watching this documentary with a theater full of people. And what I'm always apprehensive about, number one at a festival, is I, I don't think anybody's going to not like this documentary because everybody can find something they'd like about it. I'm always worried about people that there'll be people in the room. So you know, I just hope someone comes to the screening. Uh, but we, we've always had great crowds. And one thing that I notice, I always stand in the back of the room if I'm actually at the festival screening, 
and I kind of watch the reactions and, and hear it, and no one starts wiggling, no one starts squirming, no one starts getting uncomfortable. They are all focused and riveted on what's, what they're going to see and hear next while watching this documentary, and then they come out with just this sort of like, you know, spent amazing emotional ride, and you can't get that if you're sitting it and watching it, you know, on your commute to the subway. Um, you know, or, or, you know, nothing wrong with watching a movie on your laptop at home or on your, on the, you know, on the Netflix, on your big screen TV. That's an amazing way to, to, to see things. Um, but to watch a, a documentary like this with a group of people of like mind in that theater experience was something that we really relished and we're hoping that we'd get as long a run as we can because that's what it really all is about because we're talking about that feeling of that first time you sat in that movie theater and the lights went down and you had your popcorn and your best friend or your seventh grade girlfriend next to you and you remember that night for the rest of your life. No one remembers that first time they, you know, you know, they turned on uh, Amazon Prime and they got to the credit <laughs> right. and, and, and it buffered, you know, for 20 seconds and then you saw a great movie. No one talks about that tomorrow. Netflix and chill? Well, yeah, <laughs> that's a that's, that's a great PR you know firm, but you know everybody remembers that time they sat in that movie theater and and yeah. you know held hands with their girlfriend or boyfriend for the first time, or you know, and walked out of the theater and remembered something changed that night. And we want that to be the same thing with Wolfman's Got Nards as a documentary. Uh, that's why we didn't want it to play like an informative historical doc. You know, it plays like a, a, a story narrative that people can absorb into and fall into and remember those days. And selfishly, there's a little bit of terror before every screening because you fear those needle drop moments. But yeah. there's a lot of adrenaline when those needle drop moments are replaced with laughter and tears. And uh, mm -hmm. I'm personally kind of addicted to screening the movie and theater. <laughs> so, so, far we've had, so far we've had a really good uh, positive run. So, like, like Henry said, that's 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 a little addictive. <laughs> um, wanted to if, if it's cool to switch over to talk a, a little bit about the 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 film that spawned the documentary, The Monster Squad. Um, we had a few questions. Sure. I, I, you'd mentioned Stand by Me earlier, and I I kind of for me growing up, Stand by Me and Monster Squad were kind of on the same that same universe in my mind and uh we did recently did a podcast on stand by me and researching that film like rob reinard said that he had it was difficult because you're working with child actors but you he tried to find actors that were as much in the script as they were in real life and then from there worked with them in rehearsals and theater games i was curious about the approach that fred decker took you know was it similar like when you guys as a group, because you seem the sincerity and the friendships in Monster Squad to me seem as authentic as they are in Stand By Me. And that's what I think makes one of the reasons why I love both films and what they've they've carried over and, and seem true to coming of age stories. So I was just curious if that was similar on that set, like if Fred Decker used those same like set of tactics to get you guys together and get you comfortable and how close your characters were in real life to the characters in the script uh short answer yes I, I i i think i think so and it worked and boy to be you know the the 
the squad and monster squad to be, you know, associated with the group and stand by me, um, on the same level to me, that's, that's a great compliment. Um, I'll take the, the selfish compliment there that I was one of them, but also I think that, you know, pays a little, um, you know, kind of, uh, uh, hat tip to, you know, Fred and Shane who are trying to create that camaraderie and that core group and of your buddies and, and at a certain time in their lives. Um, yeah, look, stand by, you know, in any movie in the 80s or in any decade that has, you know, a group of kids in it, everybody's going to audition for it, right? And, you know, Stand By Me is one of my favorite movies, uh, but it was also one of my big didn't gets because I screen tested for that movie and went, you know, fairly deep in the audition process and always lamented that I wasn't in one of my favorite movies. Now, that also is assuming that if I was in it, it would still be one of my favorite movies or would have been the same movie. Um, so it's a little of almost like, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle there. If I was in, it would be a totally different movie to me. But um, I think everybody in that movie was expertly casted and picked out, and their performances were spot on for exactly what those characters needed. I also think um, the same thing happened with Monster Squad, uh, because my personal casting story with Monster Squad is I didn't audition for the role of Sean Crenshaw. I auditioned and screen tested for the role of Rudy. And got the call from, you know, the studio to the agent to the house and said, hey, you got cast in that movie, The Monster Squad, but not for the role that you read. And I was actually a little disappointed at the time because Rudy was the cool character that we know got to kill all the monsters. Um, but I got cast as the lead. So, you know, that's kind of a weird negative reaction to have right off the bat. Yeah. But I always say in the very end, everybody was exactly where they needed to be in the Monster Squad, just as I think everybody's exactly where they needed to be in Stand By Me. Uh, and I think there's some definite parallels, though, even though they're you know in two different complete worlds. Yeah, I feel like Sean is, is Gordy and Chris is Rudy, like in, the, in a, in a oh, weird yeah. parallel. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what's great about that is Fred, I think, what made it – what probably made it easier, Rob Reiner obviously did a great job working with those four guys who were all friends of, you know, me and ours growing up. And, you know, they're all fantastic. And, but Rob Reiner did a good job because he knew what he wanted to get out of them. I'm sure he worked with him and, and, and brought it out of them. Those, those kids are talented naturally. Uh, I, I think with Fred, his approach was, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not that much older than these kids. <laughs> right? Fred was only like 25 and Ryan was 14 and I was 13, uh, you know, when we made this movie or Ryan was uh -huh. 15 when we finished it or something. And, you know, Fred's like, I can relate to these kids and I can get across what I want to. I'm still going to direct a movie, but when I'm dealing with the kids, I'm going to, I'm going to connect with them on a different level than some, you know, old gray haired guy with a beard, maybe that these kids don't understand or he doesn't understand sure. them. And I think the youthful exuberance of Fred, of being a cinephile, of being, you know, a comic book kid, of being a monster movie kid, you know, that just oozed out of him while we were making this movie. And I think we just all sort of absorbed that. And, you know, that enthusiasm of being a group of kids and, you know, your teenage years and having a treehouse and, you know, being a part of that, um, you know, I think it just comes naturally and just kind of, you know, was an, was an easy construct uh, for me but I'm sure it was a, an endeavor for Fred to say, this is what I want. And I think it'd be a great question for him of how, you know, he approached handling dealing with kids because look, they're not the easiest to deal with because you could get a different kid 
every day. You know, you know, you have the same actor, but he could be a different person every day because, you know, you're 12, 13, 14 years old. And, um, you know, it's just a, a, a different world. And you can only be on set so long. You, you got to get all this great work out of them in a compressed amount of time. Uh, so anybody that works with groups of kids is, you know, they're, they're piling on the effort load for them. And when it works, it works. And, uh, you know, I love young, talented actors. And I think there's some great ones, you know, you know, over the decades. And I think there's some great ones out there now. Um, and it's super hard to do. But when you do it well, it comes across. And I think those are the things that last and connect. Like you said, something like Stand By Me or, or Red Dawn or Monster Squad or Stranger Things Now, right? Everybody loves those kids because they're all great. My mine was just uh, just a curious little tidbit in the in the uh, Wolfman's Got Nards documentary. There, there's a snippet where you see behind the scenes of the uh, final battle scene, which is everybody's favorite scene. Of course, I mean, I don't know. I have a billion favorite scenes in the in Monster Squad, but I am curious the uh, um, where Patrick is 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 holding your hand, like the wind is starting and like the vortex is is beginning um there are these giant fans and i was wondering like were your legs suspended or was that actually like you were being held like because the wind was that severe that might sound like a really dumb question but i it didn't look like your legs were being held by anything yeah no it's a, it's a good question it's always something and i didn't understand what was in you know, what was never in the actual movie um that was a big stunt rigging because, uh, you know, we all had the wind and the leaves and the foam bricks and the foam stop signs being thrown on our heads constantly. Um, but that was supposed to be a gag of, like, after Sean stakes Dracula and he gets picked up by Van Helsing in the vortex, that Sean yeah. is almost flying into the vortex and his buddies make a human chain off of the railing at the church. And Patrick grabs my arm right before I fall, you know, fly into the vortex. And what... I, I, I love the fact that we get to see it in the documentary because no one's ever seen it before, but I was up yeah. on a harness rig. So I'm floating about three feet off the ground, looking like I'm flying into the vortex while this human chain of my buddies is holding on and saving my life, right? I remember, I remember that shoot very well because that harness um, somehow got posi- misaligned in position, and so it was kind of oh, no. crunching some things. You don't want <laughs> crunched on a something in a movie. But, um, you know, you had to hold tight and, you know, the wind's going and you're shooting action and it's, you know, late at night and uh, it's just crazy. And I always, I always lamented that that shot was not in the movie. I don't know why. It may, may not have looked good or they didn't get another shot to tie it in. But I'm glad we get to use it as a BTS thing in the documentary because it, it was one of my first stunt things. Did you have a wire attached to your feet and legs, too, to make them look like they were horizontal? Or was that the power of the wind machine that was uh, putting you sideways? No, it was uh, like, a, like a, a saddle rig, um, like a harness, uh, like the bottom half of like a parachute rig. So it's wrapped around your legs and under your legs and around some things that don't need to be harnessed. <laughs> and, um, you know, with two clips on the side okay. and you have thin wires on your hip bones. And that's, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of balanced uh, and that just raises you up. And, you know, me as the guy in the rig had to kind of be straight legged and flailing around like your legs are flying into the vortex. So it was, uh, it, it wasn't easy, but, you know, it was, um, it, it was kind of kind of interesting to do that rigging there and having all that stuff fly at you. So it was fun. I'm glad we finally get to see it in something. <laughs> yeah, I really I really loved being able able to see that. Uh, kind of we were talking about Stranger Things. Like there's uh, I, and I I love that show. I, even though it it pulls a lot of the nostalgia kind of hard, but 
in that show, you know, they'll have like they'll have like Evil Dead posters on the wall, but doesn't seem as genuine as like in Monster Squad. There wasn't that much. It, the Stephen King roll shirt looks like something that you would make, you know, like when you would iron on stuff in the eighties. Um, yeah, because I just exactly didn't feel like that stuff was really was. like available. Like I don't know that you would have been able to buy a movie poster that easily in the eighties and no, frame and it on your you wall. Know, you're making movie posters in like Stranger Things, like all the movie posters and stuff that's in the Treehouse and Monster Squad. That's all obscure, weird stuff that's hard to yeah. find even today. Yeah. You know, um, and you know, we because we know because we. Uh, <laughs> we had to source all of that stuff because Sean Robert did a uh, poster by poster and production still by production still list of that treehouse a number of years ago. And we used that to curate and procure all of that art that's in the treehouse for our recreation at Fantastic Fest last year when we rebuilt the treehouse. And, you know, it, it, even today that stuff's hard to find. And uh, there was even one of the, I think it was one of the Godzilla or King Kong movies that you just can't find that we had on that set. And so we replaced it with another another one, but uh, we cheated there a little bit. But, yeah, that's authentic. And, like, today they put up something retro or nostalgia, and it looks like, you know, some art director's, like, doing it on purpose. You know, and, it, you know, when you go into, like, you know, if we're in a, let's say, a, a sitcom or, like, a TV show, and you're going into the girls' room, and there's going to be Rick Springfield posters that are something on the wall, <laughs> it doesn't – they don't look as authentic as if, like, the kid did it themselves anymore. It's like – you should bring yeah. the actor and let them dress the set, <laughs> you know, because yeah. there's, a, there's a certain way kids put up stuff in their room that an adult just can't recreate. But uh, I love the fact that we're all trying to, you know, bring back those feels. Yeah, because I, I always think, like, as a kid, like, I would just, like, cut out Fangoria and just, like, it would just be probably grossly plastered on my wall, not, like, a really nice frame and, like, never, centered no, in the... never, never framed. Right, yeah, um, ne- never framed, put up with thumbtacks, your mom gets mad that there's holes in yeah. the wall... Or you exactly. put them on there with like the wrong type of tape, and your dad gets Duck mad tape. you to pull the tape off the wall. <laughs> Takes the tape off. Uh, you know, this is all we didn't yeah. have all this great 3M strips and like sticky dots <laughs> and all this stuff like we have now, um, which would have been amazing. But yeah, it's sort of like a hodgepodge, and you know, yeah, you know, it's uh, and you can tell when that it, it's sort of that authenticity that shines through. There's a funny story that I have about the the Stephen King roll shirt. Um, I was just walking down the sidewalk one day and, and I passed this girl who was wearing one. And at that point I actually hadn't seen anyone wearing, wearing that shirt in real life and was like, Hey, monster squad. And she's like, what? I'm like your shirt monster squad. And she's like, Oh, I got it at some like concert I was at. I'm like, really? And she's like, yeah, it was like the band. I was seeing their merch. I'm like they were selling that. What was the band's name? She's like, I don't even remember. I'm like, yeah, it's from a movie. And then it just like died. But I'm like, what? You don't even know? Okay, that's cool. But it was the most like to me. It was like I know exactly what that's from. I didn't even. Well, yeah, consider... you, you make different. You make two two different points there, really. Uh, unbeknownst to you, is one is that shirt. Like I said, become that piece of iconography. But also that shirt connects people because you walk into a room at a party or someone's house or in college or at some film event and someone's in the corner wearing a Stephen King rule shirt and you're a Monster Squad fan, you two are going to connect that night. You two are going to meet and talk about it. And that's been happening all over the world. And then it's funny to see people wear a Stephen King rule shirt that the other half that we get, like I run into people wearing them kind of regularly, you know, once in a while. And they're like, oh, yeah, he's my favorite author. (laughs) <laughs> like yeah no Stephen King's great but do you know where yeah. that shirt's from and they go 
no. And I go, okay, that's awesome. Uh, Cujo is rad. Have a great day. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> um, and, you know, we've had them on our table at conventions and people bring them the sign and Someone got one from us one time, and she was like, yeah, he's my favorite author. And she's at a table <laughs> full of the Monster Squad cast getting a Stephen King rule shirt, you know, getting a Stephen King rule shirt, and doesn't even know what Monster Squad is. Oh, my but God. But that's okay, because, yeah, you funny. know, Sean Crenshaw wore it because Stephen King rules. Yeah. We have a really good researcher on our team that could, like, find the pin number of anybody if she had enough time to. <laughs> and she got, she got through to uh, Stephen King's assistant. And we reached out to Stephen King about doing the uh, doc, and the assistant wrote back the nicest letter talking about how uh, King would totally be into it. He's really busy. This is before The Outsider dropped, and he's working on the new book, and he has deadlines. But it was just so nice for them to take the time and let us know that he wouldn't be able to do it, but he was familiar and enjoyed The Monster Squad. Oh, that's really sweet. That's yeah. awesome. Um. You know, I I have uh, just uh, just one more question, um, Andre. In the interim, those the years between after the Monster Squad came out and maybe like right before you realized that there was a giant fan base out there, um, did you revisit the movie very much on your own, or what were your feelings on it um, during that time? Like, you know, how it, it affected you personally and your career. Yeah, you know, well, you know, you work on this movie and it's a giant studio movie with uh, effects and monsters and ensemble casts and, you know, six or eight months later you do the premieres and the tours and the opening premiere parties and then the movie comes out and it bombs and then it's gone and there's no more talking about it because it's dead. Uh, you yeah. know, as an actor, of course, associated with something like that, that sort of, um, that sort of uh, hits you in the gut a little bit because you're expecting or wanting, hoping this to be something successful, something big that will, you know, elevate your career, uh, you know, get you to the next things. Um, fortunately enough for myself, at the time I was already working on new stuff and new TV shows at the time, so I, it, it didn't sit there and kill anything. It just didn't kind of, you know, catapult anything at the same time. But, you know, and then after that kind of wanes and goes away, uh, you're like, yeah, that's a shame. You know, this movie was really good and a lot of fun to work on. And then, you, you know, that was, then I get into high school. I'm still working. I'm still on TV shows and doing other films. And then you go to college and you meet people that, you know, love the Monster Squad and they want to watch the movie. And they're like, hey, will you watch it with me? And you're like, this is insane. I don't want, you want me to keep it like that. So, you know, you get to see it every once in a while. And then a lot of people are totally afraid to ask even something like that. Some people have no filter and they don't care and they just want to do it. And so, you know, every once in a while, yeah, you'd get to see it. Um, but it's only on VHS, you know, for 20 years, right? So whether it's someone's, you know, Maxell or BAS BASF tape with a piece of masking tape on it or an original VHS copy that they stole from their video store, you know, you ran into it every once in a while. And every once in a while, your core group of friends, you know, I lived in, you know, I went to college in North Carolina and lived there for many years and have a great group of friends. You know, they'd get together and want to watch it, and they were all fans and, um, you know, until that 2006 Alamo Drafthouse reunion screening, you didn't really, I hadn't seen it on the movie theater screen in, since 1987 and hadn't seen it projected in a 35 millimeter in, you know, 19 and a half years or so. And so that was definitely a, an awesome experience. And then to have that kind of explosion of fandom, uh, you know, volcanically erupt right there. And then the internet just absorbed it all and spit it back out into the atmosphere. 
um, it, it was quite interesting. And then just a year later to see a DVD out, and now everybody can have it except for the ones that didn't get it because it sold out. And then, you know, then a Blu-ray comes out, and then another Blu-ray comes out, and then, then it's on Netflix, and now it's on Hulu, and it's on Amazon, and it's on demand. Uh, that's kind of crazy. And, you know, that's kind of a testament to the, to the quality of the movie itself from Fred and Shane. Uh, and then, you know, the, the, fan, the fan demand that this movie not die and disappear, um, that's kind of cool. But, you know, for a number of years, it's just sort of there, something that you did, something that you remember, that you'd meet, a, you know, a handful of people that are like, oh, my God, let's watch it. Um, you know, that, that wasn't a lot of that for about 19, 20 years until 2006. Yeah, the uh, the 2006 screen actually was at. I was living in Austin at the time, and uh, I went with my sister in law. And we were, it was like a movie that we just us we would talk about, like no one else in our family were like, yeah, you know, watch Monster Squad. So but you, that, and that, you I remember went to that event. I went to that event, yeah, and it was like it was amazing how like packed and just insane it was like it was just like one of the most and i'd been i when i lived in austin i'd go to south by southwest a lot but the energy in that screening was like huge like more than i had seen it you know any other screening i had been to at the time yeah we didn't know what that that was at the original alamo which was upstairs you know in the storefront on yeah. and, uh, you know uh, uh colorado congress i believe and it was um that was an amazing experience, you know, two sold out shows up in that attic theater and just sort of, that's what it was all about. And that couldn't have been a better place to kind of launch what we've done for the last 10 or 11 years. So that was an amazing event. Um, is there anything, uh, just want to is like, thank you guys so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, we wrap thank it up you. a little bit. Is there, is there anything that you guys like have, like, I'm sure we probably asked you guys like a bunch of stuff that you've been asked before, but is there anything that you guys have had, wanted to discuss about the documentary that you haven't really been asked too much? I don't think so. I mean, I think it's, um, we love reacting to the, you know, the questions that we get asked, you know, s you know, some are repetitive, some are not, but those are all the, you know, kind of core things that need, you know, that should be talked about. I think what Henry and I enjoy is the kind of response that people have that we get from watching this doc and absorbing it and transporting them back to a time where they remembered their favorite thing if it's the Monster Squad or something else. And, you know, I think that's just it. And I think it's okay to remember those things. And I think it's great to, you know, revisit those things, get a recharge, and then, you know, move on with your day and your life and, you know, tackle new challenges and, and either create something or fix a problem or, you know, go to work and do a good job at it. If, you know, going back in time and remembering those, those things that made you feel awesome can help you today, um, then that's what it's all about. And if you use those as your fuel and your rocket fuel, then, then by all means do it. And, you know, we'll sit here and celebrate with you. And people like you that take the time to put the spotlight on the best parts of pop culture. Thank you so much for getting the word out and inviting you, sorry, inviting us to the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. We couldn't be happier to have you guys truly. Thank you very much, Justin. This is kind of monster squads, really the movie that started, um, Justin and I talking about doing a podcast. Um, it, admittedly, it was our first one that we did. I mean, first practice one that we ever did. And whew, can't wait to redo it. But um, really, uh, you guys brought us together. So th thanks for making this documentary. I was truly blown away by it. Thank you. Well, thanks a lot. We appreciate it. Um, and uh, it, 
I was wanted to just uh, real quick, like um, your the squad. I've been enjoying your podcast, the Squadcast. Is there how is there uh, anything you could say about that? Like how that's come together, or it it. I, I kind of yeah. like how it just sort of uh, there's updates and just it, it sometimes it some it's really fun. I think uh, fun to listen to. <laughs> you guys kind of got like all over the place sometimes, and I love that yeah, the, the sporadicness of it. Yeah, absolutely. I heard the last episode of the Squadcast that just went up is the best episode of the Squadcast. <laughs> I wonder why. I guess who the I wonder who the guest on that one is. Uh, you know, Henry came on our on, yeah. on Ryan Lambert and I's podcast Squadcast with Ryan and Andre last week. Um, it, it, it was a great thing that Ryan and I, you know, we finally started that. You know, and the fans really kind of connected with it. And like you said, it's just it's super conversational and laid back. It, it usually goes off the rails. Sometimes there's whiskey involved, sometimes there's not. Um, and it started out with Ryan and I just kind of reminiscing and, and shooting, you know, the breeze back and forth about something that's going to happen or has happened. And then we have some awesome guests. And, um, you know, it started out as just a free podcast on our SoundCloud channel or on iTunes or Google Play and on the website, ryanandandre.com. It's still there, audio version. But, you know, maybe you guys don't know yet or not, but, you know, we uh, we actually launched a new show in the new phase of it, and it's on video, and it's on Patreon. And so you can find that on, you know, at uh, Patreon slash Ryan and Andre. And our very good friend and awesome filmmaker, Henry, was our guest last week. But uh, we've got, I think, four episodes on the new one out now. But um, regardless of the Patreon view, uh, we do some other stuff on different tiers, like Ryan writes a blog, Ryan sings some songs on the deck, um, and we just goof off. And, uh, you know, I think we handle it well. We know Ryan and I sort of have a slogan for it that I came up with last year. Um, we might not know what's going on, but we know what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. I think you guys have a great rapport. Like, Yeah. We, we 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 fell into a thing years ago that it was just so natural that we're like this is this has got to be recorded because that really just originated Ryan and I hanging out at the restaurant killing time, and um, you know people like uh, you know fans and friends and my wife especially was like you guys should be doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so now now we do. It's been a little over a year and we've been enjoying it. That's awesome. I got really excited when I learned that uh, Ryan is a big X-Files and Buffy fan. I just immediately wanted to talk about that with him. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I think, you know, what we'll do is we'll set up, uh, we'll either have you guys on our podcast or Ryan and I will come back on your podcast and we can, you can, look, you're going to get nine hours out of Ryan about Buffy and X-Files, no doubt. Oh, my God. Okay, quiet. well, it's it's <laughs> already in the works as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, we we can do a dual podcast. We'll just both of them air the same show. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a trip. That really would. That'd be well, crazy. Thanks. <laughs> well, uh, thanks again so much, uh, guys. And um, is there a way for uh, our uh, listeners to to follow or reach you guys on all the uh, social media platforms? We always like to get that out, uh, the information out for everybody so that they can, they can find information on what's going on with uh, Wolfman's Got Nards and what's going on with you guys. Uh, you know, the, the social handle for the, for the doc is at the squad doc. Uh, that's also the uh, website address, uh, uh, the squad doc.com. That's where everybody can go to get, you know, updated info, festival info, release info, appearance info, um, any tidbits like that. And you can always follow um, myself on Twitter, which is at Andre Gower, and on Instagram, um, 
Andre Gower official. And Henry is uh, hdilla, at hdilla, D-I-L-L-A. Uh, so you can always follow him, follow me, follow us, follow, um, you know, Squadcast with Ryan and Andre. We, you know, we update there. Um, just get the word out. I mean, it's, you know, it's up to folks like you that, uh, you know, this documentary success is going to be word of mouth, you know, sort of like the building 20-year fandom, uh, you know, wave crest of the Monster Squad. So it's going to be by awesome people like you that get the word out. If enough people ask for it, I bet we can get you a documentary on VHS. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that would do really well now that, you know. I totally think it would, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's already been a great conversation. But, uh, yeah, definitely, <laughs> you know, keep us informed. Let us know when this drops, and, you know, we'll promote it and, uh, you know, keep retweeting it out there so we can get as many people listening to it. Yeah. yeah. Great. We'll do. Thank you so much. Uh, that we can't, yeah, we can't think enough. Yeah, thank you, guys. Awesome. This was great. Thanks a lot, awesome. guys. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Have a good one. You too. Bye. So uh, thanks again for checking out our interview with Henry and Andre. Um, I got to say again, it, it was it was a real privilege to get to talk to those guys, especially uh, exciting to talk to the star of one of your favorite movies yeah, growing up. Yeah, of course. Um, so the documentary is currently uh, doing the film festival uh, route. Um, you can check them out, follow them at uh, Doc on Instagram. Uh, you can go directly to thesquaddoc.com to find out information on where the film's showing and uh, multiple screenings. You can find them, let's see, September 15th at the uh, Geektastic 2008 if you're in Burlington, Iowa. October 13th at the Salem Horror Fest in Salem, Massachusetts. That'd be pretty cool. And October 15th at the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival uh, in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, they didn't confirm or deny anything, but I'm, I've got my fingers crossed that it'll be at the St. Louis Film Festival this yeah, year. I'm hoping so, dude. Um, I haven't heard anything yet, but hopefully uh, we'll be able to get in contact with them and find out. And if it is, we'll do our best to promote it oh, via we'll be this there. podcast. Yeah. Um, but that's Wolfman's Got Nards, a fantastic documentary about the making, the whole shebang monster squad um thanks so much for listening to the interview thanks so much for checking out our episode on the monster squad um so coming up uh we're going to next week yeah it's just like one two three yeah uh next week (laughs) uh we'll be doing our all bill murray episode it's, it's bill murray's birthday week. birthday week so we're celebrating so it'll be all things bill murray so that'll be a lot of fun mm-hmm. um so catch us there um until next time i'm justin johnson and i'm Lindsay reber thanks a lot <laughs>